0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode of Speaking Broadly is brought to you by Red Clay Hot Sauce. Learn more at redclayhotsauce.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week I interview an extraordinary woman whose wise words have inspired me. And today my guest is Alex Pomoulier. She's the director of finance at Sea Creatures in Seattle, and she is an awesome writer. We're gonna talk very specifically about success and failure. It just seems like it's the right time. With so many of us struggling through COVID and enduring failures that are not of our own making, it's a really interesting conversation to have about what can you control? How can you change what you might perceive to be a failure? I'm talking to Alex who's actually incredibly successful. She's worked at Momofuku as the Director of Finance for seven years. She and her husband Kevin opened two really successful restaurants, 30 Acres in Jersey City in 2011, and then Mean Sandwich in Seattle in 2016. And then she closed them both. Alex, welcome. Thanks. Maybe we could talk a little bit about how you define failure personally. What does that word even mean to you?
2: I I think I would define failure as setting a goal for yourself and not achieving that goal. I define it very personally. Not, I don't think I would necessarily define it as somebody else's
1: goal that you don't meet, but it could be if, if you
2: accepted that goal as your own personal one.
1: When was it that you feel like you developed that first notion of, God, I did not meet my own goal here? Like, it seems like it was way back in college. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I, I didn't really have a lot of experience with failure as a child just because I don't think I allowed myself to put myself in situations where that would happen. I was a gifted kid in the sense that I was gifted in all the ways that don't matter as an adult. (laughs) Whatever, I mean, I was good at school. I was good at piano. I wasn't as good at soccer, so I quit that. I kind of did the things I knew I was good at and stuck with those so that kind of to avoid failure. So I didn't really have to face it.
1: How do you think about that? Like, is that fine? Or would you roll that back and take a different approach?
2: I... Can't say I would do it differently because I just don't like to look back and say I would do anything differently, but I definitely didn't like it about myself. And I think I swung the other way really hard. Once I kind of realized it about myself and once I faced that it was something that I was doing, I instead embraced failure, and chose paths that would actually introduce me to a lot of failure on purpose. Tell me about that. Well, okay. So <laughs> my first experience with failure was with, with real failure was in college. I went and studied abroad um, in Paris my junior year. And I really loved college. I thought it was great. And I was very excited to study abroad. But then when I did it, I hated it. I I hated school. I just didn't like the French school I was going to. I was totally freaked out by (laughs) the amount of French that I was expected to know. And I didn't feel like I knew enough. And I was expected to do this like crazy 20 minute oral presentation in front of all my French classmates. And I'm terrified of public speaking. So it was just like my worst. It was an actual nightmare. So I just stopped going to school at all. Like it was the craziest thing I'd ever done.
1: Let's pause there for a second because the girl who was really gifted and really great at school. And then you go and face a completely unknown situation that you just drop out. Like, what did that do to you? Or how did you even just decide I'm not going to be that girl who... Powers through? Well, I didn't have a choice to power through. Like,
2: I wasn't a particularly tenacious kid. Like, it wasn't like I powered through things that I sucked at and did them anyway. I just chose things I was good at and did those things really hard and really well, but... I didn't fancy myself somebody who could take a bad situation and turn it around. Like, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do the presentation in a way that wasn't totally humiliating to me. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to get a good grade in that class. Like, I knew it was failure was inevitable. So I chose like a bigger failure it was a feeling I had never felt in my life where it was just, I'm going to give up. Like when faced with inevitable failure, I'm just going to hide. So that's what I did. I literally hid in my room <laughs> in this apartment that we had rented for a while. And I also, I just walked around Paris a lot and I, and I found a bar that I liked going to. And then I asked for a job to work there because I had worked in, in restaurants in high school and I knew it was some place I felt comfortable So I applied to work there and I got that job and I just kind of left all the failure at school behind me and I just disappeared. I mean, this is before social media email had just kind of just started. So my school tried to email me and get a hold of me to see where I was, but I just fell off the face of the planet and really embraced that hard. I started doing a lot of drugs and drinking and I was really, really poor because my parents wouldn't pay for me, obviously, if I wasn't in school and my school wouldn't pay for me anymore, obviously. So I had to pay with my wages from the restaurant, which I was working illegally, so I got paid very little. So I was just broke and depressed and struggling. Did you ever ask yourself that question? Like, does it have to be this way? I think I was so filled with shame for failing, that I kind of felt almost like my misery was punishment for that. You know, like, this is my new life as a failure. <laughs> Guess I'll just have to live this way forever. And I was a child, you know, I was only 20 or 19. And I just didn't know. And I didn't have any support or anybody who knew me
1: to remind me, hey, this is not the end of the world. And were you scaring yourself? Or were you sort of embracing the... Person you were becoming?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was definitely pushing the boundaries of what was safe. So I just wasn't being safe. And I was kind of pushing what it meant to be unsafe and not take care of myself. And not make the right choice. So I was sort of saying, okay, what's the wrong choice in any of these situations? I'll just do that and see where that takes me. Um, And so I did a lot of stupid stuff during that time and definitely stuff that was really not good for me. I I ended up getting into a a very abusive relationship, which I was in for about a year. And
1: it was just a black hole of darkness for a long time. And so then you came back to the States. What made you finally decide to come back to the States? Well, I ran out of money.
2: So it was basically like, I'm going to go live on the streets because we could not. We were getting kicked out of our apartment. So there was nowhere else to go. And I was living illegally in France. So there was a limit to how long I was going to be able to do that without needing services from the country. And obviously I couldn't get services if I was illegal. So I took my boyfriend and we we came back to the United States, to Seattle, where I'm from. And we moved into my parents' mother-in-law Cottage in the back of their house, which was really just a shed. (laughs) But we lived in it, and my boyfriend and I continued to fight, and he ended up breaking my jaw one night, and that was the last I saw of him
1: forever. He just left.
2: He left when he was British, so he to this day I don't totally understand how he got out, but he he uh somehow escaped to Canada because he was a felon after that. So he went to Canada like that night. I honestly have no idea how he did it. It's actually like impressive that he left because he must have left like 5 minutes after he hit me. He was a pretty smooth talker, so I'm not totally surprised, but yeah, it's crazy to have never seen him again. But so yeah, so that night I went to the hospital obviously and as they do in the hospital, like when you're a victim of domestic abuse, they're going to call the police, which they did. And I remember it just being kind of annoying that this cop showed up and it really felt like he felt like he knew my story in a way that really bothered me. Because I really felt at that time, I really felt like I owned my story, that I was on this new path. If my entire life up until that point had been this like well-paved road, of success. I had taken this like really intense left turn into the forest and I was just doing my own thing and carving my own path and fuck success and all of that. And it felt very much like he was trying to say, actually, no, your life is really cliche. <laughs> and I was, it just pissed me off. And I remember he said to me like, oh, you know, it's none of this is your fault. He He's just an asshole. Like I see this all the time, that kind of thing. That would just, it like clicked in me Something, And I just remember, because I remember it so well, like I just remember being so angry at that idea that this was not in my control, that this was something that just happens, that sometimes there are just assholes and sometimes they just hit you or sometimes mistakes just happen. And I wanted to say that isn't how I feel like I feel that it is my fault. And that's empowering to me. Like, I don't feel it in a way like, oh God, I'm such a piece of shit that I let this happen. I, I more feel like, wow, I made some really fundamental mistakes and I don't ever want to make those mistakes again. And if I hadn't made them, I wouldn't be here right now. So... How can I learn from this?
1: So you got out of the hospital. I mean, I can only imagine how difficult your relationship with your parents must have been. I mean, they must have been so worried about you when you were in France and even more worried for you when you came back. How did you deal with that relationship?
2: Well, after I got out of the hospital, I was on a lot of drugs because they gave me really intense painkillers, Dilaudid, which in retrospect, I think was a really weird choice of them to do because I was very young. I had a substance abuse problem already, which they didn't ask about. I was clearly in a not in a good emotional place for having just got, been in and then gotten out of an abusive relationship. So I spent the next month afterwards, really just out of my mind. I lived in my parents' living room floor because I didn't feel safe staying outside. and then college was gonna get started. So they drove me in their suburban all the way from Seattle back to Chicago and left me there. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think I'm just impressed by my parents' ability to not micromanage that situation. So, yeah, I went I went back to school and I ended up figuring out a way to take a bunch of credits and I still graduated in time. So I really only went to college for three years.
1: <laughs> what was it like when you went back to school? Like, did, did you have a hard time sort of figuring out now, who am I? Like, I was this mm. renegade in Paris and like that doesn't seem right. And I was this good girl growing up. And what type of ideas about yourself and your identity were you grappling with when you were going back to college? Uh,
2: It was really hard. I think it was partially hard because I worked in a bar in Paris. So I was like very much steeped in like alcohol and bar culture. And then I came back to college that summer. I was not even 21 yet. So I couldn't even go in a bar. And then I turned 21 right before I went back. And so it was like, everybody was freshly going to bars and I felt like, oh, I am a bar professional. Obviously I was not at all actually that, but that's how I felt. So that was sort of funny that everybody was kind of drinking shots for the first time and everything. And I was like, oh, I
1: prefer champagne,
2: which I'm sure was insufferable for everybody around me.
1: So when you were in college, did you think that the restaurant world indeed could be your place? Or like, where were you heading? What were you studying?
2: I studied international studies, but that was basically just the result of, you know, I really quickly figured out in order to graduate on time, I had to cobble together what credits I could. So it just happened to be that they all kind of fit under international studies. But I think I I loved restaurants. I worked in this burger restaurant my entire time in high school and I absolutely loved it. It's still my favorite job I ever had. I knew I wanted to be tangential to them somehow. I toyed around with being a teacher for a while and I just hated it. But I also really liked writing. I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'll just write about food. <laughs> this is great. I'll just do this. And I didn't know at all how to do that. Uh, but I mean, I, 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 I think I, I had enough self-awareness to realize that I, I needed to learn a lot more. So I moved to New York because I was dating a new guy, and I moved with him to New York after college. And I applied to all the kind of writing jobs that I could specifically if they were food writing. And the one I landed was I worked as the assistant to Antoinette Bruno at Star Chefs. It was a really like crazy, absolutely insane year of my life. But I met a lot of like really great people while I was there uh, that I'm still friends with. Like we still talk all the time, <laughs> um, which is kind of crazy. Because we were all only there for a year. So that kind of, that introduced me to the New York City restaurant scene. So I I worked there for a year and I was burnt out working a million hours. And I heard uh, there was this beef between Antoinette and Dave Chang. And I forget what it was even about. It was some misunderstanding at some event or something. But anyway, they hated each other in a way that like, I'm sure was totally disproportionate to whatever happened so I was I was in a 23 year old mood 22 23 year old mood and I decided to email Dave out of the blue when his his email address used to be momofuku at gmail.com I emailed him and I said I heard you hate my boss I hate her too I think I should work for you instead um that's (laughs) the most amazing letter I have ever heard yeah I I I have the email still because I'm always like did I really write that yes I did um, I had never met him or anything, but I, I got the feeling where I was like, well, Hey, what do I have to lose? You know? So he responded, I think, like the next day, and said, Well, I've actually already hired somebody for my assistant, because he had he was hiring for an assistant. He said, I, hire, I just hired somebody for my assistant. But I think your email is amazing. Like, we'll, we'll try to figure something out. And I, and I just thought like, well, that's never going to go anywhere. But then a month later, so I actually quit Star Chefs, I moved back to Seattle, like, oh, I guess it'll never work out, my dream of being in, in in New York. And he called me about a month later and was just like, come back to New York, I want you to work for me. I don't know what the position is yet, but I, I just need you in the company. So I flew back to New York and started working there.
1: And you came back for a a job that you had no idea what it was. So you were just trusting that something amazing would happen at Mama Fuku.
2: Yeah, so maybe that's like a good way to describe it is just like what my experience in Paris and everything had kind of given me was this ability to take more risks without fear of what could go wrong. Because I knew what that felt like when it went wrong and I wasn't really that scared
1: of it anymore. That is a powerful lesson that everyone can learn from, right, like your worst fear, whatever that is, usually it's something that you can come back from. I mean, maybe you can make a life-changing mistake and never return, but generally, the thing that you're most afraid of, it just bumps you onto another path, but it's not necessarily a bad thing.
2: Right, or, or even if it does take you on a life-changing path and it changes everything, that's still, then that's where you're at. And now you've learned from that. And I guess you weren't supposed to be on the first path in the first place. you know? I think it definitely swung me in, in an opposite direction where then I was just like, fuck it all. I'm gonna take every risk I can because that's the only way I feel like I'm gonna get where I wanna go.
1: Do you feel you've since then taken undue risk?
2: No, I don't. I don't feel like I'm like a risk, risky person. I definitely think I take risks that other people are like, wow, I probably wouldn't have done that. That's pretty crazy. I don't know. I just I, I guess I just was very fearless for a long time. I just did not have fear of repercussions I had fear of failure in the sense that I wouldn't be successful, but I had faith in myself that I could be successful at anything or that success could look a lot of different ways. But, oh, I'll just do this thing and I'll figure out a way to make that successful. Um, like, for example, when I so I was at Momofuku and me and this other woman who was hired before me, EJ, we were both kind of just figuring out whatever needed to get done, which was a lot. <laughs> when I started, there was just like, mountains of cash everywhere because no one knew what to do with it or how to reconcile it or anything. And it was just, we would take like $20,000 of cash to the bank account, which was not safe. There was nobody to actually put the cash in the bank or, or they didn't have any systems for it or whatever. So we hired, at some point we hired this accounting firm to help us. And they were sitting in a meeting, it was me, Dave, and EJ and them. They were saying, well, you guys need somebody in-house who, you know, manages your money. And EJ and I joke about this now because she kind of like slinked away. <laughs> and I was like, me, you know, I'll do it. And like, I was, I had never opened Excel in my life. Like, I I didn't know the first thing about finance or anything really numbers related at all. But I was like, yeah, no, I'll learn it. No problem. I'll, t- I'll do it. You know, just because I wanted to feel needed, I think. I wanted to feel important. So I did it. And the rest is history. <laughs>
1: How did you figure it out? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I am good at it. So I had a natural like ability to sort of figure it out on my own. But also, and I think much more importantly, I befriended one of the women who worked at the accounting firm. And she, out of some amazing sense of benevolence, decided to train me how to be a bookkeeper for free on her off time. Because she would come to the restaurant at like 10 p.m., and, like, trained me until 1 a.m. working on things. And she taught me everything, everything that I knew about bookkeeping. I had never done bookkeeping in my life. And she taught me everything. Her name is Dana Zukowski.
1: <laughs> She's amazing. So you took a finance role and learned it on the job, being taught, being ballsy, and, like, not being afraid of messing up.
2: Right. And then I kind of got a further opportunity because maybe, like, a year later, I was joking around with Dave. And I was saying, you know, like, oh in order for me to move forward in this role, I really feel like I need to have my MBA." And he was like, "'Well, if you apply, I'll, I'll pay for it.'" And I don't think he totally knew what he was saying, or he was definitely joking. And I said, "'Okay, are you sure I can apply anywhere?' And you'll pay for it. And he said, Well, you have to keep working. So it has to be in New York. Oh, and he also was like, I don't think you're going to get in. I don't, because that was like a classic Dave way of encouraging someone. So it was like, you're, You suck and you should not do this. But if you do do it, I'll pay for it. So I did. I, I took the test and I pat, I got high, good scores. And I, I ended up applying to NYU and got in. And he paid for it.
1: So what was the culture like at Mamafuku? Because I think that that ties back to like the way that you motivate yourself and the notion of how failure can be a motivator, but it can also be very painful personally.
2: Um, yeah. So, well, I think it was part of the reason I stayed for so long is that it was a really good fit for me in not necessarily the most healthy ways, but it, it, I fit in really well because I was so ambitious and was so committed to failing in as many ways as I could, which it means jumping off a building at every single opportunity, you know, and not stopping and going, hold on, wait a minute, is this a smart decision? You know, this is just like, no, full steam ahead. I'm going to keep going and I'm going to try things. And if they fail, I'm going to try something else just constantly. I mean, Momofuku when I was there was just a series of impossible tasks that we were able to achieve. For example, like the co-reservation system, there was no reservation system that wanted to do exactly what Dave and Drew wanted to do. So we were like, let's just build it ourselves, you know, even though none of us have any like website building experience and don't really know what we're doing. And, you know, we're basically reinventing the wheel, you know, we just did it. Or, um, opening restaurants with absolutely no money (laughs) because we didn't really have a ton of money back then. We just did it. I mean, even, even the fact that I was made a director of finance when I was maybe 25 and our director of operations who ended up, who was EJ, who was that same woman who was hired right before me. She was also, I think 25 or 26. And then the director of marketing who was Sue Chan. She was younger than us. She was 24. Basically everything we did was the first time we had ever done it and we didn't have anyone mentoring us or teaching us anything. Everything we did, we had to figure out on the fly, which is not necessarily the best way to do things. <laughs> I was gonna
1: say, what do you think of that as a way to proceed?
2: I don't know, I mean, it has its pros and its cons. Like, now that I'm older and I consider myself an expert in various fields, I am like, wow, it would have been so nice back then to have somebody like me now <laughs> saying, you know, hey, actually, this is the way to do things. You don't have to reinvent the wheel.
1: But it allowed us to be really innovative. Dave talks a lot about failure and the importance of it. And I was just you know, wondering if that also had an effect on the way that you thought about failure. Because here you have a leader who's like, everything I learned, I learned from failure. If you don't fail, there's no way to succeed. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, he, he bore that into my head. And I agreed. I took it so to heart where it was... That was part of my obsession with failure was that it was risk-taking and you wanted to be innovative. But also, I remember him saying it so much and finally it clicking where it was like, you don't learn anything from succeeding. You learn nothing. It's a valueless experience. But you, when you fail, you learn so much.
1: How do you feel about that in like looking back? like, Do you still believe that? Yeah, I still totally believe that.
2: And I still really value my failures a lot I think there's another way of looking at it which is that it makes it really difficult to revel in your successes so I have a hard time even looking back on my life and going well these were my successes and these are my failures I don't really see a lot of successes I only see failures
1: how do you feel about that
2: it's not great it's definitely not great for my for my mental health that part of it I don't I don't want in my life anymore. I don't think that that's helpful to ruminate on it. I think it's great to fail. I think it's great to look at your failures and say, wow, what could I learn from that? What could I have done differently? But I don't think you're serving yourself at all by looking for failure where it doesn't actually exist.
1: Or on the, on the flip side, what you were saying is not valuing su- like straight up success. Sure, yeah. There is value in success, but I think it is harder
2: to learn from success. It's cloudier and success feels good. It's hard for me to learn from lessons that make me feel good because I'm so busy saying, oh, I feel so good about this. I must have just done everything right. And that's great. I think it's hard to pinpoint what the thing is that you did right. If I were to do that, I would say, okay, I'm going to pinpoint the thing I did right and these other things weren't the things that I did right. So even in success, I'm still going to probably look for like what I hadn't done right.
1: Okay, and with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Alex Pamulier. <laughs> This episode of Speaking Broadly is brought to you by Red Clay Hot Sauce. Red Clay was found by self-proclaimed stubborn chef Jeff Ryan. One day, while working on a new oyster dish in Charleston, South Carolina, Jeff created his signature flavor. It's a blend of Fresno chilies, which changed the oysters without stealing the spotlight. Since then, Red Clay has expanded its line of modern southern hot sauces and added barrel-aged hot honeys. Every flavor is crafted with love and cooked with culinary expertise. Every batch is balanced and flavor-forward. I know because when I got my Verde hot sauce, it was literally gone in a day. A bottle used by my family at breakfast, lunch, and dinner on everything from eggs to tacos to steak. I didn't set it up that way, but somehow it was gone. Red clay hot sauces are sustainably produced in a tiny town in South Carolina. They're crafted with just a few ingredients, namely southern peppers and high-quality vinegar aged in bourbon barrels. Unlike most hot sauces that boil their peppers, red clay cold presses theirs. This allows the natural flavors of the Fresnos, Carolina Reapers, and Habaneros to shine. Red clay sauces have won over a lot of discerning palates, not just mine, because they bring a heat that puts flavor before fire. Take a look at their collection of Southern sauces and hot honeys at redclayhotsauce.com. Use the code DANA25 for 25% off your first order. Valid until August 31st, 2020. Alex and everyone, welcome back to Speaking Broadly. I'm so happy to continue this conversation. You met your husband at Mamafuku, Kevin, he was the chef at Noodle Bar. When did the dream of opening a restaurant together begin to bubble up? Because the the two of you did open a restaurant together, 30 Acres, and all the press is like two Mamafuku alums doing a restaurant.
2: Well, we had to push for that, honestly. The first couple articles were... Momofuku alum opens restaurant. And Kevin was so mad. I mean, I was obviously very mad also, but I was sort of like, well, welcome to being a fucking woman. But he was so mad. He called the reporter and was like, you need to change this article. This is so disrespectful. My wife still works at Momofuku. You know, he was so angry. And of course they did. They were like, oh, whoops. You know, they just didn't realize. We had to fight for that. But uh, we started thinking about opening a restaurant really, really soon. It was almost, it it was in the fabric of our entire relationship. Um, I'd say instantly. We even, we didn't ask for anything for our wedding. We didn't ask for gifts in replacement. We asked for like restaurant supplies. And uh, I think we had like a honey fund or whatever for just cash for the restaurant.
1: (laughs) Do you feel like your relationship up until you moved to Seattle this last time was actually a relationship among three people, like a restaurant and a man and a woman? Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, there was never a
2: us without a 30 acres we didn't have the name right away but we knew always what we wanted and it was our dream I mean it was we had no plan it wasn't like I was like oh I can't wait to be 70 and still working there I just didn't think anything past getting it open and then running it we don't I don't think we had any conversations about anything other than the restaurant (laughs) for a long time
1: Did that ever give you pause at the time? Like, oh my God, what would we be if there was only two of us in this relationship instead of three? Uh, No, I didn't because I just thought we would always have
2: it. I mean, we really enjoyed each other's company. It's obviously, you know, we're best friends, but it was just, we were okay with it. It was, yeah, maybe it was like we were in a three-person relationship.
1: And then you, you opened 30 Acres. It was hugely successful. I mean, I was going back and reading Pete Wells's review. And successful, you know, it's the same way that success has a definition, failure has a definition, like successful as in you were well-reviewed. People yeah. really liked the restaurant, so externally successful. But internally, it seemed like it was actually a struggle. Right.
2: I mean, I don't think it was a struggle more than all new restaurants. Like, I don't think we had really unique Problems. Other than we didn't have any cash, <laughs> but that was fairly normal for a lot of restaurants that open. But we were totally exhausted, um, which also is not unique. But then I got pregnant and we had our daughter and then it changed. And it just all of a sudden, it just didn't make sense anymore. It just like the whole thing fell apart. And Kevin was working all the time. And I was never working, which was the opposite of what both of us wanted. And we had to kill it, which was horrible. (laughs) It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was so hard. And I remember exactly when we decided to do it, you know, because we'd obviously been talking about how miserable we were and how things needed to change and we tried all these things and we switched to a tasting menu format and all these things and I remember yeah I was in the shower and Kevin was in the kitchen we lived in this like 400 square foot condo so that's not very far from each other and we were yelling at each other about not not angrily but yelling to hear each other about something, about a sous chef who quit or, a, or a, whatever, a piece of equipment that was broken or something. And just being like, when is this ever going to end? When are we ever going to be able to spend time together? And I, I, can't, I guess I can't remember which one of us said it first, but it was like, maybe we just should just sell it. And it was just like, and whoever said it, both of us felt in that moment, like, yeah, that is obviously what we have to do. As insane as that is, it felt like a relief to admit that that's what we needed to do.
1: Do you think part of the reason it seems so insane is it is just not the model in the restaurant business? Like, it's such a strange industry in that there's an idea baked into the opening and promise of a restaurant that it's going to go on forever and that that's, again, what success looks like but success also can be just pulling out and saying no. Yes.
2: I think that is very true and on good days I think I am able to get there and say this was success. Like it's definitely a success for my daughter. And frankly it's I mean it's a definitely a success for my marriage. You know it, the 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 final chapter of that conversation we were just having about our marriage like what would it have been like without the restaurant? It was really, really, really tough. And now it is so much better. Now we joke like, oh my God, can you imagine if we work together again? (laughs) Like that would be hell. So we did choose a more successful path. But I, at the time and on my not good days, it still counts in the fail bucket for me. I think something as an ambitious person that I really relied on was my ability to set a goal and be absolutely unwavering on my ability to reach it. Like no matter what, there was no changing the goal. There was any discussion of changing the goal was an excuse. That's it. There's just no other conversation to be had. And this is an example of I did not reach the goal. I just did not reach it.
1: Although one could one could say you actually you sold the restaurant, that is a goal, and that's a goal that most restaurateurs don't reach. So
2: totally, I, I achieved other goals. You know, we were the first restaurant to be re- reviewed by Pete Wells outside of New York City. We made it four years. We sold the restaurant. Like so many things, we did well. But those, all I can hear is a voice in my head that says those are all excuses. You still didn't reach the one goal that you set for yourself.
1: When I think about that today in the context of COVID and the number of people who have to face these really terrible decisions with their businesses being challenged by something so far outside of themselves. What do you say to people or think to yourself in terms of looking at business right now and the need possibly to close it or switch it?
2: I say to them the opposite of what I say to myself, (laughs) which is that this is not their failure, that there is nothing they could have done and that they deserve to live a happy life and to feel successful despite this terrible situation
1: they're in. It's so interesting because it's like the cop at the bottom of the bed, right? Like it's not your fault. But when you think back to Paris and you couldn't even imagine trying to pursue that goal, it was like give up because it seemed too hard. I love how... You've completely upended that. Yeah, I mean, I, I am
2: proud of my ability to do that. But I, am also, I also recognize that, that goals change, priorities change. I don't even want a restaurant anymore. <laughs> like, I don't even want to go back and succeed at that goal. That doesn't even interest me. So I think the work for me is being able to figure out how to just be okay, even if I never can let go of, it, of seeing it as a failure, just being okay with that.
1: I like this notion of goals changing because I think that's really important. When you're in your 20s, you're like, this is gonna be my goal for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And then as time goes on, you're like, you witness how goals do change. Like, are you conscious of how they changed for you or just in retrospect, do you see that?
2: No, I'm conscious of it. I think because I talk about it so much with Kevin and I just think about it all the time. I'm fortunate to have a life where I sort of experience milestones like in real time. So I I know like when I had my daughter, everything changed. And it doesn't mean that I changed my life instantly overnight, but it felt very much like, okay, I now have this new goal of providing her with a life that I think she deserves. And that goal has only gotten stronger and stronger and stronger as she gets older and I get to know her better. And I'm just more resolute in my commitment to providing her with a life that she enjoys and it feels safe and can spend time with both of us.
1: Did that surprise you that motherhood came on so strong for you? Yeah, because I definitely did not want
2: kids (laughs) at all. Um, I was not at all somebody who thought I was gonna have any kids and then I did and, and I thought I would go straight back to work and I would have no problem and that just was not the case. What happened instead? Uh, well, I I had a baby who was very colicky and really enjoyed breastfeeding (laughs) and I just could not leave her. I just could not do... It was the most primal feeling I've ever had of just really, really pure clarity of what I wanted to do and what I needed to do. And it was be with her and take care of her. Not in a way where I'm like, and I just like found my true calling. That's not what I'm saying. It was just a primal clarity that I knew what I needed to do in that moment. And it was take care of her. She really was scared in the world. And I just, for whatever reason, that's her, her personality at that time. And I just knew what she needed and I needed to provide that to her. And, and everything else just didn't matter nearly as much.
1: It's a big surprise going from someone who doesn't want kids to someone who is really a devoted mom and doesn't go back to work. Did that change your sense of identity? Oh, terribly. I mean, it was
2: so hard. For the first year, it felt like I lost every single benchmark of what I knew to be reality. And I had to create a new one by myself because I didn't have any family and Kevin was at work all the time. So I was just by myself figuring out with (laughs) with this newborn who would not stop crying, who I was without work. (laughs) which was really, really, really very hard. What did you find? I found myself, you know, I found who I am without ambition, which was really a scary thing to face. I used ambition as everything. My entire identity was ambition. And then I tr- couldn't have any. You can't be ambitious with a child. I mean, maybe you could, but I, I, I couldn't. Uh, I didn't feel like ambitious to be like, she's going to be the best, something. I just was just trying to survive and it made me face a lot of my own insecurities and a lot of my own feelings. <laughs> I cried a lot. <laughs> yeah, I struggled. I just it was a really really emotionally tough year of my life. And meanwhile, we were also trying to close the restaurant. It was just incredibly hard to feel wor- self-worth when I didn't have anybody telling me I had self-worth.
1: So you you closed the restaurant and then you moved to Seattle to open a restaurant that seemed simple it was a sandwich shop, but you encountered some of the same issues, right? What What was that like to you know move, change concepts? You're across country. You've got your daughter. It was really it, it was really exciting.
2: I mean, I, I felt like we have this new plan. You know, it was like my classic. Okay, we failed. I'm going to learn from this failure. I'm going to do it differently. We're going to have a day restaurant. We are not going to work nights anymore. And that's going to, you know, free up both of us in the evenings. And we're going to be really chill about it. You know, like we're going to take out service. So we don't feel like we're having to meet this like really intense, high standard for full service restaurants. We're going to make these one menu. and We'll maybe do one special every once in a while and it'll be great. And we took like a year off, which was amazing. And then it caught up to us within a year after opening the restaurant. We were totally drowning already. In retrospect, it's I just think we were still very tired. I don't want to say we shouldn't have opened a second restaurant because I'm really proud of the restaurant we opened, but we got tired a lot quicker this time.
1: And you... Found a great person to sell um, Mean Sandwich to, which is fantastic because you really kept it in the family in a way. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that this is a different situation because
2: with 30 Acres, we decided to sell it. Like we were like, we are doing this. With Mean Sandwich, we were not committed to selling it. We were like, well, maybe we can still make this work. We knew that probably one of us had to go get a job. So I got a job. And I was talking to my boss, Renee Erickson. She was just like, my husband, he, he loves mean sandwich. I think he would love to, to take it over. And it almost seemed like, are you, are you serious? Like, is this really, is this how this happens? But it did, it just happened. It was very organic and it was extremely friendly. I mean, this is his first restaurant owning it. And I think he brings that amount of passion to
1: it. So at the end of speaking broadly, I always ask my guests a pair of questions. The first is, is there a product or ingredient that you think is so much better than the hype? Uh,
2: Well, actually, I have two. They're both restaurant tools that I think people who don't work in restaurants don't know about. And they're great. One is like actual uh, plastic wrap that restaurants use. So much better than like the saran wrap you get. In the store. It's just like a restaurant grade and it comes in this like massive box. So like one roll would last you five years unless you go through a lot of plastic wrap. You'd have to go to cash and carry or one of those like restaurant supplies. It's like it comes in a big white box. You would see it. I think it's probably the only ones they sell. But it sticks on itself. Like it basically actually serves the function that you think it should, which is it sticks to itself. It sticks to the thing you're putting it on. And it's amazing. And then the other one is core containers. So core containers are like a way of life, basically, in the restaurant. So they're, uh, I'm sure you've seen them if you've ever gotten like soup to go. I mean, they're amazing. Once you have them in your life, there's no going back because they serve every function and they are great Tupperware. And you can drink out of them, which is the most common non-traditional use of a core container. Um, you can label them. That is probably something I miss the most about being in restaurants, just, how often you had core containers around. Some of, some of them smell a little bit like onions, but you just drink your water out of them anyway and don't think about it. Yeah, those, I'd say those are my two.
1: Thank you. And is there a woman who you'd love to give a shout out to who you think more people deserve to know about? Well, in addition to Dana Zukovsky,
2: who definitely deserves her own shout out, I would like to shout out my friend Angela Garbez. I met her like when I first moved to Seattle, so four years ago. She was the staff food writer for The Stranger, which is our like alt-weekly publication here, for a while. So she is an amazing food writer. And I met her because she moderated a panel for this nonprofit that I started with EJ and Sue, the two women from Omofuku. And she has just, she's really introduced me to the idea of uh, a friendship slash mentorship. I see her as a mentor to me in a lot of ways, as much as I see her as a friend. Since then, she's wrote and published a book called Like a Mother, and it's very successful. And it is the kind of book I wish I had been around when I was pregnant. Um, it just brings a really sort of scientific and feminist and non-white approach to pregnancy and childbirth and that, everything that surrounds that. It's an amazing book. And she's working on a new book right now. It's a kind of a collection of essays about the body. And I just think her her writing is so unique. And I feel privileged to even read anything she writes, not to mention be her friend and get advice from her. <laughs> so yeah, she's amazing.
1: That's a, a really beautiful shout out. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining me today on Speaking Broadly. I really enjoy talking to you, and I hope all you listeners have also en- enjoyed Alex's perspective on both the industry, but also the way that we live and the way that we can honor our failures and how we can learn to honor our successes. I hope you'll be back and join me again next week, and thanks so much for listening. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.